welcome back to the Cory Doctorow podcast. This is a special weekend because yesterday, Saturday, the 19th of February, 2022, was the second anniversary of Pluralistic. That's the multi-platform, non-commercial, non-surveilling, non-tracking, non-metrics-driven blog platform that I cobbled together by hand with help from friends like Ken Snyder and Lauren Kornfeld. And I am really happy with my two years on the job there. 75% of the time, I have put out a daily edition, so three out of four days. And that includes the time I took off for holidays, the odd weekend, and of course, a couple of long stretches while I recuperated from hip replacement surgeries. If you are paying attention to that date, February 19th, 2020, the day that I started Pluralistic, was just a few weeks before the whole world changed. So I kept this up through the pandemic. It was a pandemic kind of project. Anyway, I wrote something about it yesterday. If you go to the pluralistic.net archives, you'll find it. It's called Pluralistic is Two. And, you know, I just thought I would note it here that it's been two years since I started doing that weird thing. It's been a good week for writing. Moral Hazard, the story that I wrote for Jonathan Strawn and MIT Tech Review's 12 Tomorrows, was accepted for publication. And I kicked off work on Vigilant. That is the short story that I'm writing. It's a little brother short story about remote invigilation and proctoring, ed tech and distance ed. It's one of the premiums for backers of the Attack Surface Kickstarter, the audiobook Kickstarter. And it is also going great guns. I also continue work on Picks and Shovels. That's the second Marty Hench book. And I did my first ever reading from the first Marty Hench book, Red Team Blues, yesterday for BossCone, the Boston Science Fiction Convention, where I was a virtual guest. I have some more guest appearances coming up this week. I'm doing two back-to-back panels on Web3, God help us all. On the 22nd of February, the Stanford Cyber Policy Center is hosting me in a panel called The Policy Implications of Web3. And on February 24th, just two days later, I'm appearing for Fight for the Future and Amnesty International on a panel called Web3 for Activists. What could go right? What could go wrong? Next weekend, February 27th, I'll be appearing at City Lights Bookstore virtually for a panel on Dangerous Visions and New Worlds, Radical Science Fiction, 1950 to 1985. And April 19th and 20th, I'm going to be appearing at the Philly Emerging Tech Conference, Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise, as a keynote speaker. So that's all the appearances coming up. There's actually a lot more, but they don't yet have URLs. But I'm doing a lot of talks in the coming weeks and months. And just getting ramped up because starting in September, I'm going to be going out on tour again with my book, Chokepoint Capitalism, that I co-wrote with Rebecca Giblin. That's our book about the limits of copyright and getting a good deal for creators under conditions of monopoly and monopsony, and what else we can do to create fair labor markets for creators. I think that's now even available for pre-order. If you look up Chokepoint Capitalism, you might find it. If you don't, it will be available for pre-order soon. So speaking of choke point capitalism, this week I'm going to be concluding a three-week series in which I read aloud these medium columns I wrote telling the early history of the copyright wars in tech, these standards wars over bids to subjugate technology to the whims of giant entertainment companies. For the first two weeks, I talked to you about the broadcast flag. That was a U.S. initiative. 
This week, I'm going to conclude the series with something that happened in the rest of the world in the Digital Video Broadcasters Forum called CPCM. And as you'll hear, that was something that implicated nearly everywhere that was in America, with a couple of narrow exceptions. And now, on to the Internet Heist Part 3, We Are Family, from doctoro.medium.com. Even today, I can't tell if the entertainment execs and their tech collaborators that I sparred with in the DRM wars were brilliant schemers or overconfident fools. When these men, almost all men, set out to create laws that would give their corporations a collective veto over which programs all computers could run and which real-world data could be captured by computers, were they really doing it all for the sake of controlling how we watch TV? Or did they grasp just how power over our digital tools would translate into control over our lives in an increasingly digital era? I still don't know. It's easy to believe in unlimited corporate hubris, but it's just as easy to believe in unlimited corporate foolishness. What's more, it's possible that some of the players were along for the ride, while others had a very precise understanding of the stakes. What were those stakes? Well, for starters, how about the definition of the family? As I discussed in part one, the U.S. was a laggard in the digital TV transition, and this created an opportunity for an entertainment and tech cartel to propose a solution. Simply create a star chamber of execs from incumbent companies to dictate the operating characteristics of all computing technology— And then, Hollywood studios might release movies for a high-def, over-the-air broadcast. Other countries did not have this DTV problem. Most high-income nations have public broadcasters who were willing to step in whenever the private sector balked. In countries that use the DVB digital TV standard, in Europe, parts of South America, Africa, Asia, Australia, etc., there was a quick and relatively painless DTV transition. But somehow, DVB still got suckered into making a DRM component for its standard, DVB Copy Protection and Copy Management, or DVB-CP-CM. This was a product that no DVB viewer wanted, but nevertheless, the same tech and CE companies that teamed up with the movie studios and broadcasters, mostly from the EU, to create a technical specification for restricting how programs recorded by DVB users would work. This spec had a lot of bells and whistles, but at its core was the idea of an authorized domain, a collection of devices owned by a single, quote, household. The proponents of the authorized domain offered it up as a reasonable compromise between a world with no video sharing and one where anyone could share with anyone else. By defining a perimeter around a, quote, household and its members and devices, they would allow for reasonable sharing while blocking unreasonable sharing. Here's what that amounts to. A group of Western, mostly white, mostly guys, engineers and lawyers working for massive global tech and entertainment corporations and broadcasters all sat down to decide which family arrangements were reasonable and which ones were unreasonable. 
I was in those meetings too. It was so bad. I mean, they had lots of interesting business logic they wanted to throw at this problem. Like, how could you get your authorized domain to encompass the mobile devices your kids used, the screens at the summer place in France, the seatback video in your Mercedes SUV, and your own laptop? That's a gnarly problem, one with all kinds of implications for territorial rights deals, like what if you record a football match that aired in the UK, but then took it to the continent where there was no broadcast deal? Give it to them. They figured that stuff out. So, one day... I proposed my own use case. Imagine a family where mom and dad live in Manila, but dad spends half his year on the road as a migrant agricultural worker. One of their sons is building high-rises in Qatar. Another works as a landscaper in Toronto. Their two daughters are both home healthcare workers, one in Hong Kong, the other in Los Angeles. Can this family be encompassed by the authorized domain? Can all their devices share video? The idea was dismissed out of hand as a, quote, edge case. That edge case, that family, it's orders of magnitude more common than the family with the summer place in France and the seatback video screens and the Merc. But it didn't matter. These guys and the corporations they worked for were deciding in that room what a real family looked like. And if it didn't look like your family, well, that was your problem. One other moment stands out from those negotiations. We were discussing how often a device could be joined and decoupled from a domain, that is, a family's constellation of devices, and the matter of joint custody came up. What happens, someone asked, if there's a minor child with divorced parents and every week she changes households? Will she be able to link and unlink her device from mom's network, then dad's network, then mom's? Well, no, that wouldn't do. Allowing unlimited join-sever operations could facilitate content laundering and sharing beyond the authorized domain. The business logic and the standard would not allow it. After a few of these switching ops, the system would lock out this poor kid and tell her she couldn't change households again. This presented a conundrum. Some of these guys were probably divorced and in joint custody arrangements themselves, and they were much more sympathetic to this use case than they were to my hypothetical Filipino diaspora family. But we solved it. A rep from one of the largest tech companies in the world explained that when his company's license servers blocked a new computer from being initialized with a license key, all the user had to do was call a toll-free number and explain the circumstances, say that they'd gotten a virus and wiped their computer and were reinstalling their OS, and the customer service rep would hear them out and, if their story was convincing enough, override the lockout. That was the solution. If you're an adolescent coping with your parents' divorce, all you would need to do is make a phone call to a stranger once a month or so and explain the painful inner workings of your parents' custody arrangement, and you'd be able to go on watching TV. Here's the thing. If it's a crime to break DRM, and it is, thanks to EU law, like Article 6 of the EUCD, and US law, like Section 1201 of the DMCA, and if all devices have DRM, then whatever the DRM prohibits, the law prohibits. What's more, all computers have a certain functional equivalence. A digital camera is just a general-purpose computer with a lens and some specific UI buttons. 
A smart dishwasher is also just a general computer with its own specialized hardware. In a world of general-purpose computers, any regulation about which software can run on some computers turns into a rule about which software can run on all computers. Do these guys know it? Was the next move always to use the power of DRM cartels to allow corporations to define social structures like the family in shareholder-friendly ways? Or did they start with the goal of controlling how we watch TV and then have a kind of bet-you-can't-eat-just-one experience where control over watching TV became a slippery slope to attempts to controlling everything? One thing I do know None of these guys ever thought any of this stuff would apply to them. Every one of these committees, the BPDG, the ARDG, CPCM, started off with the bedrock principle that these rules would not cover, quote, professional devices, the devices they themselves kept at home. Just like the top MPA lobbyist who illegally copied This Film Is Not Yet Rated, Kirby Dick's movie about corruption in the movie rating systems, but insisted that it was fine because he kept his illegal copy in his vault. The systems of control these guys designed were for us, not them. CPCM got a lot of bad press, which I helped to create. The whole enterprise became quite acrimonious, and the fragile alliances that kept CE and IT companies in conspiracy with the movie studios, sports leagues, and broadcasters frayed and broke. Today, CPCM is mostly a bad memory. But the corporate world is more concentrated than ever. Large firms got larger, and the number of execs who have to agree to a conspiracy before it covers the majority of users has shrunk. And these conspiracies have flourished. Our digital lives today are far more vulnerable to the choices of small numbers of executives meeting behind closed doors to decide what is legitimate and what is not. The makeup of these groups has grown a little more diverse, but that has not made the structuring of our lives any more democratically accountable, humane, or reasonable. At the end of the day, corporate monopolists will only ever anoint reps who can be relied upon to serve corporate interests. Engineers continue to act as though fuzzy, indefinable spectra of human life can be safely quantized into crisp categories, whether that's the calendar, national borders, names, genders, biometrics, or even street addresses. We round up these programmatic approximations to 100% and tell anyone who squawks to be reasonable. When these false truths are embedded in code, when that code is made universal thanks to monopoly or cartel or mandate, and when it is illegal to alter that code, then code truly becomes law. The map becomes the territory. The software doesn't model your family. Your family must conform to the software's model. The computer says no, and you don't get to say no back. Digital rights are human rights. No technical committee, no matter how representative and diverse, can anticipate every contingency that every user will face. Technological design must incorporate feedback and perspective from the people who will have to use that technology. But that's only table stakes. Unless we have the ability, both the technical skills and the legal right, to reconfigure our tools, then our human destiny will be as prisoner to the venality, imaginative shortcomings, foolish errors, and disregard of distant and long-dead technological designers who lacked the humility to understand that the rest of the world and the rest of time 
would be weirder than they could hope to imagine. All right, I'll talk to you next weekend. Have a great week. Maybe I'll see you at some of those Web3 panels. You've been listening to the Cory Doctor podcast, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike US 3.0. Or as Woody Guthrie put it in another context, this song is copyrighted in the US under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years, and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of ours, because we don't give a dern. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do. Many thanks to John Taylor Williams for mastering. That's Rynek Studio, W-R-Y-N-E-C-K Studio at gmail.com. John Taylor Williams is a full-time self-employed audio engineer, producer, composer, and sound designer. In his free time, he makes beer, jewelry, odd musical instruments, and furniture. He likes to meditate, to read, and to cook. Talk to you next week. <laughs>